Would you pray with me? Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful. Kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. These are well-known scripture verses. The citation is actually wrong in the worship guide. Uh, it's supposed to say Luke 15, 1 through 10, and I didn't catch that. I have a faulty five key on my computer, and so sometimes I have to bang it a lot to get it to, you know, do. So anyway, it's Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now, these are familiar verses for us, right? And, and I've read and read and read and read to get ready for today. And I really want to thank uh, Professor David Lose, who uh, is a, a, a theologian and scholar and preacher and a uh, good Lutheran pastor, uh, for a lot of the insights that I'm going to share with you today. Um, but we're going to start with an English lesson. <clears throat> I know you're excited about that, right? Um, let's talk for a moment about parables, shall we? The word parable comes from the Latin and from the Greek word parabola, meaning comparison. And the definition of parable of a parable is short. It simply means a story, often allegorical, that is designed to illustrate or teach some truth or moral lesson. That's it. That's what it's designed to do. Now, Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi, would have followed this tradition of teaching by telling stories, parables. Even today, uh, contemporary rabbis use storytelling for a lot of what they teach. Of course, the stories of Jesus also included often interesting and challenging twists, <coughs> unexpected things that his listeners would perk up to. Of course, we don't often hear these things because we're not in that culture, right? We, we're not living in that culture. We're living in a postmodern American culture. So <clears throat> Eugene Peterson, who was a Presbyterian minister and author and notable for his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, he described the parables of Jesus as narrative time bombs. <laughs> so maybe we ought to take a look at them. Our reading today narrates two parables in a row about being lost and found. The third parable that follows is the well-known story of the prodigal. The prodigal son, which really is more about the love-besotted father than it is really about either of the sons. <clears throat> but that's another sermon. In these two parables we just heard this morning, Jesus disrupts the ideas that the religious, righteous people then and now, even now, held about the fact of what it means to be a religious person. He, he's disrupting all of that, not just by his words, but by his very presence at a table, sharing a meal 
with tax collectors and people that have been labeled sinners. <clears throat> Jesus calls out the religious authorities of his day, but I want you to remember that these are not bad people. <clears throat> these are people who have been raised in their culture. They have uh, understood themselves as being people of God. They have tried to follow the law very faithfully. So they're the sort of upstanding people of their culture. I mean, think uh, council members, church council members, or deacons, or pastors and bishops. It's that kind of people. They're not bad, particularly. They just... Um, so we, we tend to hear the word Pharisee and we're like, bad people. But that, it's just not the case, so don't go there. Jesus is calling out these religious authorities because, interestingly, they're not upset about what he's saying as much as the company he is keeping. They're grumbling, murmuring, because he's sitting at a table, which is an equalizer, right? The table, when it is set, and he has made it an equal place for all people. <laughs> And so they're not liking that because in the culture of their day, people got to sit at the head of the table who were important, and then it went down from there, right? And a lot of people didn't even get to the table. Jesus is hanging out with, talking to, and sharing meals with these people labeled sinners. I want to remind you that the people lab labeled sinners are, are labeled such because they don't meet the qualifications. They're, they're marginalized, they're outcasts, they're, uh, they're just, they're not in the fold, you know? Now, we do that today. A lot of people get labeled as outcasts. We might not call them outcasts, but we marginalize people. And, and so, this is what Jesus is dealing with. Eugene Peterson said, also, we just shouldn't try to explain parables. We should just let them, <laughs> the narrative time bomb go off, <laughs> you know? But for us to really understand what the parables are saying, we, we do have to do some exp explanation. The people Jesus is sharing his meal with are on the lowest ladder. They're on that ladder because of their profession, tax collectors, the turncoat locals who make their living by squeezing the life out of their neighbors on behalf of the Roman Empire, and these sinners. And that name is generally in Scripture reserved for people whose lives and lifestyle have put them beyond the bounds of moral society or at least what the moral society thinks are the bounds, right? As Luke tells it, Jesus is attracting these sinners in droves, and it's driving the religious authorities bonkers. It's making them crazy. So he uses these stories to teach. Now, they're important things um, that the people then listening would have heard that we don't hear. Consider the two central characters of these two parables. First, 
he uses a shepherd. Now, shepherding, and we especially know this from Luke, shepherding was a profession for scoundrels. I mean, these were people who couldn't get a job doing anything else. And, and so they were able to be shepherds because they were out, outside. You know, they were outside with all these sheep. Lots of sheep. A hundred in this story, right? Now, they don't own the sheep. Don't make that mistake. They've been hired to take care of the sheep. So they're hired hands. And so this parable is about a person at the lowest level of profession in the culture. And, uh, and then the second parable features a woman. And of course, women in the first century in Israel were not so good. I mean, it was not so good a place to be a woman. Women were still considered property, could be sort of put away. What is really important here in both the parables is Jesus begins by saying, which one of you? Now, Jesus is talking to the religious authorities as well as the people at the table. In both parables, to compare the religious authorities first to a shepherd and then to a woman would be highly offensive. <laughs> For him to say, which one of you? The answer to Jesus' question, which one of you, is nobody. Nobody's going to do that. Because in the first parable, in some translations, it says that the 99 sheep are left in the wilderness, which they would have been. And the religious authorities and the people listening would know that it is quite, it would, it would be stupid to do that. Reckless, foolhardy. They would lose their jobs if they were shepherds to leave 99 sheep in the wilderness and go after one who's wandered off where wolves and can get them. <clears throat> now, so add to that the second parable. Jesus uses a woman as a central character. <coughs> Excuse me. Moreover, this woman is poor. She has ten coins. That's it. I mean, she's poor, like the shepherd's poor. He doesn't own the sheep. He's just out there working. At first, it seems logical for us. If the woman had ten coins and lost a tenth of her income, well, who wouldn't? clean the whole house, sweeping. Sweeping, 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 all night long, trying to find that coin. I know about this. I've recently been losing earrings everywhere. <laughs> I've lost my best earrings in my house. I have looked everywhere for them. It is like there's a gremlin stealing my earrings when I drop them on the floor. I have looked everywhere. I know exactly what this woman feels like. I have vacuumed, I have swept, I have looked under beds and Oh, you don't look under our beds, but I mean, you know, I have looked everywhere. I have looked everywhere. This is what this woman is doing. I mean, and, and I could afford to replace my earrings. She can't. I mean, you would do that too, right? If you lost a tenth of your income, you'd go looking for it. Now, notice the response to finding the lost sheep and the lost coin. They're not just glad about it. 
No, this is an all-out, full-blown rejoicing. In both cases, the central character calls together friends and neighbors and invites them to rejoice with them. Let's have a party. I had a lost sheep and I found it. My coin was lost and I found it. And even more in the case of the woman, it takes on even more pointed joy. Which one of you would search all night for your silver coin and then spend probably twice, three times as much inviting your neighbors and friends over to have a big party? Why would you do that? Nobody, the answer is nobody would do that. Nobody with any sense would do that. Well, let me tell you something. The question Jesus asks of them is the same question Jesus asks of us. Which one of us? If we had 100 sheep and lost one, would put the other 99 at risk to search for the stray? Which one of us, having found what we lost, would spend twice what we had on having a party for our neighbors and friends? Because Jesus asks, which one of you, which one of you would do this? Well, if you're squirming, you should be, and I am too. But here's the truth. There's something else going on here in this story. The focus on the, in these parables is not about what has been lost. It's not really even about the finding and the party. It's about the two characters. The focus is on the shepherd and the woman. Jesus seems to be using this parable as an allegory, which means that the central characters represent something other than themselves. The people of Jesus' day, particularly the religious authorities, would have easily heard that the shepherd and the woman represent God. How God would act in these situations. How offensive is that for them? I mean, these low-life people are now representative of God. Comparing God to a shepherd or a woman had to be offensive. How, however, the others, the poor people at the table, the tax collectors and the sinners, they would have seen themselves in this story. They would have seen how God treats them in this story. Moreover, these sinners would have heard that when it comes to God's children, God has no sense. God would risk everything to search for and rescue one of them. One of us. Everything. And having found a lost and beloved child would give everything again to celebrate. There's only one kind of word for this behavior. Desperate. God is desperate for us. Desperate to search for us, to rescue us, and desperate to redeem us. Always drawing us back into God's abiding and abundant love. Now, Jesus doesn't set out a formula about any of this. You don't have to repent before God is on the search and rescue for you. I mean, you don't have to set down four spiritual rules or even compose a sinner's prayer to recite. I think that probably Jesus figured that often we don't even know we're lost in the first place. We do, however, know when we're found. 
And I think that's what the religious authorities had forgotten, how incredibly, unbelievably joyful it is to be searched for and to be rescued and to be found. I mean, you know, sometimes it's only when you're found that you realize you were lost at all. Which means, oddly, that while there's nothing to do when you're lost, there's all kinds of things to do when you get found, which is to celebrate, to tell people, to shout, to give thanks, to, to rejoice. And, and here's the thing. We're going to go on this the rest of our lives, getting lost, being found. Getting lost, God's searching for us, and rescuing us. This is going to go back and forth until death finds us. It's, it is our patterns. You know, the religious leaders remember the importance of obedience and discipline and morality. Those are all good things, but they forget about joy. It's joy. It's the joy of knowing that you got lost somewhere. And somehow, in some way, God's mercy found you. So you know, don't you, that you and I and all of us are created in the image and likeness of God. We carry the very spirit of God within us. We often don't believe that, can't accept it, but it's true. And every now and then you get to see that spirit of the living God emerge from a person, a human being. On September 11th in 2001, 21 years ago today, Wells Crowther went to work like every other day of his job as an equities trader in the World Trade Center. After the second tower was hit, the one that he was in, Wells led everyone he could find down the steps to safety and then went back for more. And he led another group to safety. And he went back up again and again and again until the tower collapsed. On that day, this talented, athletic, good-natured, but in so many ways, ordinary person like you and me, gave his life to make sure others could live. On that day, God used Wells Crowther to find people who were, literally, find people who were lost, a true search and rescue mission. And you know what? That Activity played itself out in the World Trade Centers again and again and again as all kind of people did that same thing. Now, I know we will likely not find ourselves in a circumstances like that, circumstance like that in our life, lifetime, but shouldn't we be ready? Shouldn't we be ready? God will use us to find others. So what if our church can be a place of joy where we hear that God is regularly about using ordinary people like us to find others in order to create even more joy? 
Well, the truth is it's already happening at New Church. Yes, it is. Just last night, in this space, Evie and Sherry welcomed 13 others to our church, to this holy space, for a transgender, non-binary, and allies potluck dinner. Do you hear that? Unheard of in most churches. Unbelievable in most churches. And you know what? I have every reason to believe they had a fabulous time. Right? Lots of joy. Lots of joy. And can't you just hear Jesus saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep, my lost coin. And just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God because of this. You know, it's easy to forget in the hustle and bustle of our busy lives that we're called to be people who find others and who rejoice at that. And the promise of God is still that God is desperately searching for us, sweeping to look for us, rescuing God's children who are lost and beloved children, and will not quit until every last one of us is found. Thanks be to God. Amen.